0: Hi, it's Inka, so happy to have you here. This podcast is all about science-based practical tools for everyday wellness, brain and mental health, self-care, productivity, longevity, and all that inspires us in health and wellness right now. I get that your time is so valuable, so I'm packing these episodes with actionable tools, real insights, and the latest in science with my expert guests. Stay updated on new episodes by subscribing to YouTube, Spotify, and or Apple. Hey, and welcome to today's episode. In today's episode, I discuss with Dr. Anna Lemke, a professor of psychiatry at Stanford University School of Medicine and chief of the Stanford Addiction Medicine Dual Diagnosis Clinic. Dr. Lemke treats people with all kinds of addictions, educates people about addictions, and has written several books about addictions. uh, Her latest book is called Dopamine Nation and in the book she describes how this neurochemical or neuromodulator dopamine drives our behaviors and possibly addictions, especially when it gets imbalanced. Dopamine is a neurotransmitter known to be important for mood and motivation, but it also has a central role in the mechanism of developing addictions and having mood issues due to addiction. So in this episode, Dr. Lemke explains how all these concepts come together in our everyday life and behaviors, how can we monitor our dopamine balance or imbalance, and how can we understand and treat addiction, whether it's something personal to ourselves or a quality of someone we know. So I want to say up front that the methods that we are covering in this episode, like dopamine fasting and dopamine detox, may not be suitable for everyone. And addiction is a very complex disorder and disease, as we discussed during this episode. So if you do have addictions and you feel like you're suffering due to the addiction, then I recommend to seek out help instead of trying to deal with it on your own. With that said, I hope you enjoy today's episode where we discuss dopamine and addiction with Dr. Anna Lemke. Dr. Lemke,
1: welcome to the podcast. Thank you for inviting me.
0: I'm very excited about today's episode. You're a highly respected psychiatrist, your addiction specialist, and author who helps individuals overcome addictions, clinical addictions, I would say, and everyday addictions as well. I had so many thoughts. From your book Dopamine Nation, which basically helps people to understand how you can take control of your dopamine in a world where dopaminergic stimulation is pretty much all around us. So, today I'd like to cover dopamine. What is it essentially? What does it do in our brain? And how does it relate to our behaviors, addictions, possibly? And what is dopamine fasting? Let's start with what is dopamine and why is it so relevant for
1: our everyday behaviors? So dopamine is a chemical that we make in our brains. It's a neurotransmitter and neurotransmitters are those molecules that allow for fine tuning of electrical uh, signals because neurons, which conduct the electrical signals don't actually touch end to end. There's a little space between them called the synapse and that space is bridged by molecular molecules. Uh, molecular transmitters called neurotransmitters, and dopamine is one of those. Dopamine is essential for the experience of pleasure, reward, and motivation. It's not the only chemical involved in that process, but it is the final common pathway for all reinforcing substances and behaviors. And neuroscientists use dopamine as a kind of uh, common currency for how to measure uh, how reinforcing something is. So we're always releasing dopamine at a tonic baseline level, and we when we do something uh, which our brain says, "Oh, that's good," you know, you should do that again. What we get is a increase, temporary increase in dopamine firing above those baseline levels, and that's that feels good, right? So that's what gets our brains to say, "Oh, I'm gonna, I'm gonna do that thing again." Mm-hmm. And so, and so, you know, things that we think of as intoxicants like drugs and alcohol, um, they increase dopamine firing above baseline levels. Uh, they increase dopamine firing way above baseline levels, but any, Any reward, including natural rewards, will also increase dopamine firing, food, clothing, shelter, finding a mate, things like learning. Even aversive stimuli um, that are novel can also increase dopamine firing. So, dopamine is the molecule that says, pay attention to this, approach, and explore.
0: Mm. What do you mean by aversive stimuli that's novel?
1: Well, even painful stimuli um, can potentially r- release uh, dopamine uh, in the reward pathway. There are different mechanisms by by which it's done. S- sometimes it's done indirectly, um, but sometimes uh, aversive stimuli, if they're very, very potent, can release dopamine right away uh, in the reward pathway. Um, so this is, uh, you know, things like um, things that are physically painful or things that um, might carry bad news, but which we need to pay attention to because it's um, crucial for our survival. Mm, okay, so dopamine
0: basically helps you pay attention.
1: Yeah, it it feels good for the most part, uh, and it and it has you uh, paying uh, attention to your environment.
0: Okay, great. You talk in in the book about this uh, recent finding that pain and pleasure work in similar networks in the brain, and that the dopamine actually has roles both in reward, but also in the experience of pain. I, I guess this includes also mechanisms outside of dopamine increasing in response to aversive stimuli, but also dopamine drops causing the pain. Can you explain what's the role
1: of dopamine in reward, but also in pain experience? Sure. So remember I said that dopamine is always firing at this kind of tonic baseline, a kind of a brain heartbeat, as it were. And um, there are certain rules governing uh, this firing of dopamine. And one of the most important rules is that the brain wants to return dopamine levels back to this tonic baseline or what neuroscientists call homeostasis. Uh, And the way that the brain does that with any deviation upward in response to a reinforcing stimulus is to decrease dopamine firing, not just to baseline levels, but actually below baseline levels. Uh, in a kind of a dopamine deficit state temporarily before going back to baseline. So it's a very interesting mechanism um, for restoring baseline or homeostasis, which is to say for every um, increase in dopamine, we also have a decrease in dopamine. And that decrease in dopamine uh, below baseline is experienced as withdrawal. And the universal symptoms of withdrawal from any addictive substance are anxiety, irritability, insomnia, dysphoria, craving, and in some cases, uh, physical pain as well. So what happens uh, with addiction is that with repeated exposures to the same or similar reinforcing stimulus, that initial upward deviation of dopamine gets weaker and shorter in duration but that after response that is going below baseline levels gets stronger and longer. And eventually what can happen is we can settle in this chronic dopamine deficit state, which is essentially the addicted brain. And once we're in that state, we've changed our hedonic or joy set point. Now we need more of our drug and more potent forms, not just to get high, but to feel normal. And when we're not using, we're experiencing low levels of dopamine firing um, chronically which is really akin to like a clinical depression or a clinical anxiety. Um, and that's what drives relapse in people who are struggling with very severe addictions, even, you know, weeks after they've stopped using, it's that their baseline levels of dopamine firing are below normal. And so there's a constant desire or need to try to restore those levels back to the baseline position and, um, And that's what drives relapse and reuse and drug seeking.
0: Okay. One thing that I think your book opens uh, eyes to is the fact that not only, let's say, drug users or alcoholics have addictions, that you can be basically very high-functioning working adult or a student, but you can get hooked to some behavior or substance that then becomes maladaptive. So I wanted to ask what counts as an addiction and what separates, for example, addiction from a passion, passion for work or even passion for gaming or TikTok or, you know, things like that.
1: Yeah, it's a great question. I guess I will interject first by saying you can be very high functioning and also be severely addicted to drugs and alcohol. Um, mm-hmm. Right. So, uh, you know, we have right. this kind of conception of people with addiction as sort of, you know, clutching a, a brown paper bag and sleeping under a bench. And of course, tragically, there are people who um, have that kind of existence and who suffer from severe addiction. But there are also CEOs of, you know, major uh, Fortune 500 companies who are struggling with addiction and uh, you would not not necessarily ever know it. So addiction broadly defined is the continued compulsive use of a substance or behavior despite harm to self and or others. We usually uh, summarize addiction broadly as the three Cs, control, compulsions, and cravings. Control means repeated efforts to cut back or limit use that are unsuccessful. Compulsions means there's a level of automaticity to the use, um, a kind of loss of uh, the ability to think of other things and narrowing of mental focus and preoccupation uh, with getting the drug, using the drug, hiding drug use. And then the last C, consequences, Consequences, uh, is again, this idea that our use is now interfering with our ability uh, to achieve our goals, to live consistent with our values. It may be interfering with our health, with our relationships, uh, many, many ways that we can have consequences. Often what are overlooked are some of the more subtle mood and well-being consequences like the anxiety, depression, insomnia, dysphoria, that is the inevitable sequelae of um, chronic exposure to drugs and alcohol. It's also really important to recognize that we can get addicted to behaviors just as we can get addicted to drugs and alcohol. And the sequence is the same. People start out using usually for one of two reasons, to have fun or to solve a problem. The problem can be anything from depression, anxiety, to loneliness, boredom, you name it, everything in between. If that drug works for us, whether the drug is cannabis or nicotine or alcohol or cocaine, or it's gambling, playing video games, pornography, social media, we will likely return to doing that behavior or using that substance in order to get that initial uh, response. But as I talked about with that pleasure pain balance or the kind of dopamine deficit state, over time, the drug stops working. We develop tolerance. We need more and more to get the same effect. And eventually, we drive our hedonic or joy set point below um, normal levels. We're in a dopamine deficit state. Now we're using just to feel normal and get out of the craving state. So, you know, addiction is this combination between. Uh, the behavioral manifestations that lead to real life consequences and compulsive overuse, as well as the neurobiological manifestations, where we're changing our brain, literally changing our brain over time, such that we're less able to enjoy more modest rewards and become compulsively obsessed with using our drug, even beyond it working. And I think that's that's maybe. The big distinction with a hobby or a passion, or uh, you know something that's positive and takes a lot of our time, um, what it can happen in addiction is uh, even after uh, the drug or behavior stops working for the reasons that we originally uh, sought it out, we find that we're unable to to stop. So we get kind of caught in this vortex. Mm,
0: okay, so. Basically, if you were to monitor yourself and maybe you have thoughts that is this something that I might be addicted to, a, a good sign would be that can you stop it and can does it still feel pleasurable or do you get pain? Would you say that's true? Or
1: Well, uh, yeah. I mean, those things are true. The problem is that we're very bad at seeing true cause and effect. Mm -hmm. Uh, when we're dealing with dopamine. So in the moment when we use our drug, it probably will alleviate anxiety, depression, insomnia, dysphoria. But um, in truth, all we're really doing is medicating withdrawal from the last dose and temporarily restoring homeostasis. Um, in the long term, what we're doing is actually exacerbating those feelings. So we're not necessarily a very good judges ourselves of the subjective impact, because again, in the moment, subjectively, uh, you know, the the use brings a sense of relief. Um, But what we need to do is become aware of that long-term effect. and, And for that, we typically have to look at more objective rather than subjective measures. Um, We have to rely on other people who know us well, who are giving us feedback uh, that, uh, you know, things are not well uh, with us. Um, We need to look at sort of metacognitive effects, like Mm -hmm. are we lying about our use? So lying is not in the DSM or the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual, but it's actually a very... um, good marker of whether or not we're teetering into, depra- uh, into addiction is if we're lying to others and to ourselves, obviously, about how much we're using, how, how often, what we're using. Um, so that's a good sort of informal measure. So it can be very tricky, actually, to be able to evaluate whether we ourselves um, have become addicted. One of the very nice experiments that we can do to try to assess uh, how compulsive the behavior has become is we can try stopping it for four weeks and seeing, number one, if we're able to do it, and number two, uh, if we experience withdrawal. And if we're either not able to stop when we plan to or we are able to, but we experience quite a bit of withdrawal, that can be a a good indicator that our brains, uh, you know, have adapted to the drug in a way that's ultimately not going to serve us well. Mm. And this is what you call dopamine detox, right? Yeah. Dopamine fasting, dopamine detox, abstinence trials. um, And this is a very common early intervention that we'll do for patients who either know they're addicted or think they might be addicted or don't think that they're addicted at all, but we assess based on their quantity and frequency of use and some of the ob- objective signs of the impact of their use that they probably do have a problem, even if they don't see it. And we propose this intervention as a kind of you know experiment to gather data to see what's what. I definitely
0: want to learn a bit more about a dopamine detox and talk about the specific strategies on how to do it and what can help with it. Before that, I'd like to ask What do you think is the state of addictions today in an everyday life for normal people? Are we seeing increasing amounts of addictions
1: or maybe reduced amounts and why? Um, so, you know, since the beginning of human time, there have always been people who have struggled with addiction, um, whereas some people or the majority of people could use, uh, you know, drugs and alcohol that have been around for millennia. In moderation, there have always been a subset of about 10% of folks who find that they, um, they can't, just can't moderate their use. Um, and you know, through most of human time, religious organizations have stepped in to help with these problems. Now, as we are an increasingly secular society, we we now have more medical interventions as well as grassroots um, peer recovery interventions. So uh, is, is addiction increasing? Yes, it is. Um, What we're seeing is that more people are developing uh, mild addictions or kind of pre-addiction states, uh, we're seeing more and more people addicted to behaviors, especially um, online behaviors or digital drugs, things like online pornography, online shopping, social media, online trading and cryptocurrency, video games, or just consumption of digital media recreationally, whether it's YouTube or uh, Netflix or, or what have you. Um, we're also seeing that Uh, Demographic groups that were previously relatively immune to the problem of addiction, like women and older people, uh, are now showing significantly increased rates of addiction. So, for example, the ratio of men to women with an alcohol addiction, um, you know, 200 years ago, it was about 5 to 1. 50 years ago, it was 2 to 1. And today, among millennials, it's 1 to 1. So we are seeing as many young women addicted to alcohol now as young men. You know, alcohol addiction in women has increased about 80% in the past 50 years. It has increased about 50% among older people. So we're living longer. uh, This typical kind of trajectory where people who are going to get addicted get addicted in adolescence uh, and then some grow out of it, you know, in older age. That's no longer necessarily the case. Now we're seeing a kind of bimodal distribution. Where we have folks who have been able to use their drug of choice in moderation throughout their young and middle ages, but who, on retirement or as they enter their 50s, 60s, 70s, 80s, um, develop an addiction, you know, for a number of different reasons. So we're definitely seeing a rise in addiction. As I talk about in Dopamine Nation, we're now living in a world in which almost everything has become drugified in some way, and so even you know previously healthy behaviors, uh, like playing games or like reading, um, or socializing things that we would really think of as healthy and adaptive have become drugified and have the potential now for addiction. Mm. Uh, How do we know which behavior might be
0: risky for your dopamine balance? Let's say, how do we know that a nature walk is better than playing video games if they both make you feel good?
1: Yeah. Well, again, the key is that, um, you know, the something that's addictive will make you feel good in the moment. But as soon mm. as you stop it, you will go into dopamine free fall and you will experience craving. And so that's why it's difficult to stop. Um, and that's not true with something like a nature walk. Usually by the time you get home, you're tired and you're kind of glad it's over, even though it was nice, right? You're, you're warm in your house. And mm. so again, these things that are sort of require us to pay for our dopamine upfront through effortful engagement. Those are things where the dopamine doesn't really wear out or we don't end up in this dopamine deficit state. But things like video games, which are acutely reinforcing, release, release a lot of dopamine in the brain's reward pathway. Um, those are things that are going to leave us in dopamine free fall afterwards and become a c- compulsive and potentially destructive activities.
0: Okay. So the key would be if it's Immediately rewarding without you having to do much effort might be more risky.
1: Yes, that's definitely one of the telltale signs. That's right.
0: Okay, that's interesting. Uh, one of the things that has recently been studied a lot uh, is uh, cold exposure. Then we t- study fasting, exercise, and how they change catecholamine levels and neurotransmitters. Um, they also increase dopamine. Um, can they be addictive? Can you become addicted to cold showers or fasting or exercise?
1: Yeah. As I talk about in, in my book, I did have a patient who was addicted to drugs and alcohol and who discovered cold showers as a way to help him with his alcohol withdrawal and to reset his mood. And it was really advantageous again, because what you're doing there is, if you imagine this pleasure pain balance, you're pressing on the 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 pain side, which is a way to get the body to adapt by essentially having these neuroadaptation gremlins press on the, hop on the pleasure side as I talk about in the book. So what's happening is that you're telling your body that that the body has been injured in some way, but it's a mild to moderate injury, and in response the body upregulates its feel good neurotransmitters like dopamine, but also our endogenous opioids, endogenous cannabinoids, norepinephrine, serotonin. So that in fact is a very good way to get your dopamine indirectly because you have to work for it um, and because the dopamine levels are usually quite modest in comparison to intoxicants. Having said that, um, it is possible um, that you can get addicted to painful stimuli. And we see that, for example, in patients who get addicted to exercise, who continue to exercise even after they've incurred serious injuries, who spend enormous amounts of time exercising and thereby incur opportunity costs like time not spent doing other things. You know, you, you could say, well, what about professional athletes? Of course they, that's their profession. They have to devote themselves uh, to that, um, you know, in order to succeed, but there's even there a fine line, you know, beyond which you would not want to, uh, continue to exercise, for example, again, beyond, beyond in injury. Um, once that happens, you know then you're entering entering this territory of harm, which is again the sine quantum of addiction that is you know once we've um, crossed over into um, harming ourselves or other people we've, we're really you know in the realm of addiction mm, okay.
0: one way to overcome addictions is as you mentioned, dopamine fasting, so that's the abstinence from the drug of choice. Uh, Can you tell more about dopamine fasting and how does it work?
1: Yeah. So I always like to say upfront that addiction is a chronic relapsing and remitting disorder, and it's not like a dopamine fast is going to solve the problem of addiction. Um, Also, it's not something that we recommend in people who are at risk for life-threatening withdrawal from alcohol, for example, or Xanax or other benzodiazepines or sedatives. It's also not something we recommend in the outpatient setting for somebody who's repeatedly tried to stop using on their own and just hasn't been able to. Those individuals obviously need more support. Maybe they need to go into a residential treatment facility. But as a kind of a first pass in our own lives or in our outpatient clinic, a dopamine fasting can be very instructive and helpful. And essentially what we do is we ask patients to abstain from their drug of choice for four weeks. Why four weeks? Because four weeks is the average amount of time it takes to reset reward pathways. We always warn patients that they're going to feel worse before they feel better, but that that feeling worse is time limited if they can just get through the first 10 to 14 days. What they find is that slowly their dopamine reward pathway will reset itself. They'll go back up to baseline. They'll start to feel better, be able to enjoy more modest rewards, get out of that vortex of craving and, um, ultimately, you know, get to a place where not only are they able to, uh, enjoy other things, but they're also not experiencing that irritability, depression, insomnia, which they thought they were alleviating with their drug. when in fact, all they were doing was treating withdrawal from the last dose. So that's a kind of an early intervention that we can do. Um, we often ask folks to identify just one drug or behavior in their lives that they want to quit. We don't have them do everything at once because people can usually identify more than one drug or behavior, Um, except in the instance when the one drug leads very clearly to another drug. So for example, somebody who's trying to quit smoking cigarettes and finds that they really crave cigarettes whenever they drink coffee, for that person we might recommend, well, for these four weeks, you know, why don't you cut out coffee and cigarettes? since there seems to be a stepping stone, a connection between those drugs. So that's you know that's what we do. We, we can help people with medications if they need it, um, as long as those medications aren't themselves addictive. But there are some new, exciting pharmacotherapies to help people with appetitive control. But the key is to try to go those four weeks without using to get to the end of it, to feel better, which most people do, and then to decide, you know, what's next? Do I want to continue to abstain from this drug or do I want to go back to using? And if I do go back to using, what do I want my relationship with that drug to look like?
0: Mm. Um, There has been a trend almost about the dopamine detoxing just for, for everyone. Do you think it's also useful to do if you don't have a clinical level addiction?
1: Yeah, I mean, I think it's maybe even a better intervention for people with sort of this kind of overconsumption, but not quite addiction, um, because um, it's something that practically speaking, you know, people who are engaging in compulsive overconsumption can do on their own without even the help of a professional. When people get really addicted, they usually need help, um, if not the help of a professional, then help of of a peer recovery group or some kind of support. Um, and this is something that I do recommend anyway that people do together with friends or family. It's much easier to abstain when we're um, doing it, you know, in collaboration with somebody else. So uh, yeah, this is something that I think absolutely people can do. It's also a great way to see whether or not you are addicted to something, right? You can feel like you're not addicted or just it's no big deal. You could stop anytime. But when you really try to stop, it can get much harder, uh, you know, than 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 we thought. And so I think that can be, that in itself can be really instructive. Mm, mm. Yeah, I have a
0: recent experience with Instagram. Of course, this is not comparable to clinical level addiction, but just like uh, inspired by your book as well, I decided that I'm going to try to give up Instagram for 30 days because I was using it daily and sometimes I did find myself scrolling even to the point where I was like I want to stop but it it's just nice to look at one more post and um I did quit it and after 30 days I noticed that it was actually hard to go back and I use it for for pro- professional purposes and I also used your book as a guide to making the decision on how to use it afterwards and now I'm I've changed my Instagram habits dramatically. Um, but yeah, I noticed that there. there were, I developed a certain type of like um, uh, even aversion to Instagram after I got out of it. And this happened to me before as well with TV. So I gave up my TV like maybe six, seven years ago and I never got a TV afterwards because I just noticed how much I was actually using time for that without really, you know, getting much pleasure from it after all. So there is a great use, I think, from my personal experience, as uh, at least from the dopamine fasting, even if you are not clinically addicted. Um, what is self-binding and how we can use it to reduce addictive behaviors?
1: Yeah, so self-binding is recognizing that willpower has its limits and that even the most disciplined person, if presented with their drug of choice at the end of the day when they're tired, will find it very difficult. To not consume. So, what we need to do is anticipate the end of willpower and actually create both literal and metacognitive barriers between ourselves and our drug of choice so that we can press this pause button between desire and consumption. And so, that's things like maybe getting the drug out of the house, right? Um, If it's potato chips and cookies, not having them in the house. It's things like deleting certain apps, uh, maybe powering down and off our phone, moving the game console into another room, having tech-free spaces, um, setting timers w- which create limits for when we're gonna use and when we're not gonna use, um, You know, putting up little signals and reminders to ourselves. Um, in that moment when we feel the commitment to want to abstain, to remind ourselves uh, of that mindset, later when we're not in that headspace and we're thinking, Oh, it's no big deal. I don't, who who really cares? You know, what does it matter? Um, one little sip, you know, one little toke, half an hour on Instagram. So I think it's really important to engage in this kind of self-binding, um, so that we, we can, you know, kind of arm ourselves for those moments when our willpower and our resolve are not there. Um, and so so there there are lots of different techniques that, that folks can use. Mm. What kind of self-binding strategies have you used to make sure that you don't go back to using Instagram in a compulsive way?
0: I have a time-related self-binding. So I have a specific uh, 60 minutes a day. That I'm using it and I don't know which category would this go but I use it for a specific purpose so basically for doing the, the so I do educational content so doing the educational post there and that's like the I guess it's some meaning related
1: Yeah, right. Exactly. So you use chronological self-binding. So you use time as a construct um, to limit it to just a very specific amount of time every day. And that's a great technique. And then you use also kind of this category or meaning where you are very intentional about what you're going to do on Instagram. And um, sometimes what I recommend is that people actually even write down what they're going to do on a particular app or, or website or on their device when they go on and they keep that right next to them, because it's amazing how we can start <laughs> on our device and completely lose track of why we were there. Um, so kind of writing it down saying, oh wait, no, I, I wasn't actually gonna watch YouTube cat videos, was I? No, I was gonna do my email. Um, so, you know, uh, those are kinds of the t- types of prompts and limits and, and self-binding strategies that can be really helpful. They're small things, but the cumulative effect can really be a very, very good. Mm,
0: definitely. Yeah, that's a good, good idea actually to write down even the mm-hmm. goal that this is what I'm going to do. And yeah, um, how can we support our dopamine? And, uh, I would like to maybe put this question in the frame that many people think or talk about that they are low dopamine because they don't have motivation or they don't have drive or they are constantly fatigued. So how can we support the dopamine balance in a natural way that doesn't make us, you know, to cause those dopamine hits that actually dips the balance into the pain side and to the chronic deficiency?
1: Right. So I think it's good to acknowledge that um, different people do have probably do have different baseline levels of dopamine firing and that for people who naturally have lower baseline levels of dopamine firing, they might actually, uh, you know, suffer more in life in that they may need more rewards to feel, uh, you know, to get their dopamine levels up and feel good. Uh, they may be more likely to uh, struggle with, you know, other co-occurring mental health disorders like attention deficit disorder or depression, so I think, it, or chronic pain, for that matter. Um, so I think it's really good to acknowledge, um, you know, that probably not everybody's dopamine reward pathway is is created equally. But but what is true for everybody, no matter where your dopamine levels start out, is that the process of neuroadaptation works the same. So that if you use um, something that's reinforcing, I'm going to call it a drug, you know, c- talking about substances and behaviors. And it releases dopamine in your reward pathway because we're all a little bit different, right? Like, so what? what, The drug of choice is an important concept. What releases a lot of dopamine in your reward pathway may not in mine, and vice versa. But once we find our drug, you know, and it feels good, the problem is that over time, our brains um, reflexively adapt to that increased dopamine by downregulating not just to baseline levels, uh, but below baseline levels. Even if you started out at low level, at lower levels, you'll now go lower than your lower levels. So what people, uh, especially people who struggle with depression and anxiety and fatigue at baseline need to do is actually do things that are painful. And I use that rubric of painful uh, very broadly to speak of, yes, actual physical pain in moderation, so not self-cutting, but things like exercise, ice-cold water immersion, um, any kind of mind-body work, you know, yoga, martial arts, but actually do things that are effortful and physically painful we have so many patients now who can barely get out of bed in the morning who can barely get up off the couch. So even just getting people to go out of their homes and walk around in their neighborhood is a big deal and a good you know a good place to start. But also things that are emotionally and intellectually painful or taxing or that require intense concentration, require creativity, sustained attention, uh, require um, exposing ourselves to things that provoke anxiety or to do the things that we're afraid of. Um, all of these things, what happens again is that your body will experience these minor injuries or minor traumas and in response will upregulate your own feel-good neurotransmitters and hormones to ultimately reset your reward pathway to the side of pleasure. And so that that's really the key there. You've got to change your hedonic set point and of course, the instinctive and also culturally condoned response is to just make yourself more and more comfortable. Eat more cookies, watch more Netflix, don't get out of bed. You have to work opposite uh, those uh, you know, urges and actually do things that are hard as a way to ultimately reset your dopamine levels.
0: Okay, that, that's such a good explanation. And what I understood, and please correct me if I'm wrong, but is that If you want to cause yourself, uh, let's say, a long-term dopamine dip and lower your dopamine levels, do things that give you fast pleasure instantly and are pretty addictive and do them often, if you want to chronically elevate your dopamine and make sure that you have that healthy levels of dopamine in your brain to motivate you uh, and make you act and uh, have that drive. Two things that are a little bit painful at first, but give a pleasure afterwards, like cold showers, exercise, and maybe meditation or something that requires stretches of concentration. That's right. Perfect. Thank you. Um, Knowing all that you know now about dopamine and, you know, after your a huge clinical experience and all the knowledge that you have, which you have a lot. And inside, what is the advice that you would give to your younger self for mental health and happiness? Um, You know, I think... (laughs)
1: Again, I think probably the the biggest lesson that I've learned in my life, but also from my patients, is to appreciate the relative nature of pain and pleasure, and how short term pleasures lead to pain, and how modest pain actually leads to pleasure. And so to do things that are hard, but to not overdo things that are hard, and to also recognize the point at which you know our bodies need to rest and recover, our minds need to rest and recover. Um, but also beyond sort of the things that we can actively do, um, either by pressing on the pleasure side or pressing on the pain side, um, I think also just learning to sit and hold pain and to not keep running away from it. Uh, because ultimately we will never outrun it. And when we turn and face our our, our difficulties and our painful emotions and thoughts, um, there is a kind of a miraculous way in which they become less potent and have less power over us. So I think that's, you know, to welcome sort of the suffering in a way and just sit, learn to sit with it.
0: Wow. Well, thank you. That's very powerful. Uh, thank you so much, Dr. Lente. This has been a very insightful and inspirational interview. Where can people find your book?
1: My book is available wherever books are sold. Um, It's been translated into 25 languages or being translated, I should say, into 25 languages. So uh, it's available on Audible if you wanna listen rather than read. So it's, it's pretty much everywhere. Thank you so You're much.
0: Welcome. Thank you for having me. Thank you for listening. I'd love to hear any ideas, thoughts or questions that you may have from these topics. You can, for example, DM me on Instagram at I am Lund, or leave a comment under the YouTube video of this episode to participate in the discussion. I also publish other self-care and health videos on YouTube. So if these topics interests you, the channel is youtube.com slash at I am I intentionally make all this information free, science-based, easy to digest and time-stamped so you can find the most relevant and beneficial information that speaks to you easily. If you like my podcast and this format, I would be so grateful if you could take a moment to give a 5-star rating in Spotify, because it really helps with the podcast visibility and reach. You can find it in your mobile device. On the main page of the podcast, there are these three dots under the logo, and by clicking that, you can rate the show. This only works on mobile in Spotify, but if you're using Apple Podcasts instead of Spotify, you can also rate the show in Apple Podcasts in your computer. Thank you so much. I really appreciate it and it really helps me. Of course, I'd love to hear about you. So feel free to reach out to me on Instagram or YouTube. Have a great day and hear you next time at the same place.